Remain standing for our sermon text from Romans 3, starting in verse 19. Give your ear to God's holy word. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because, his, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Because it is truth. And in it, you have revealed to us the gospel, the good news. You have revealed to us your righteousness. A righteousness that you have given to us. Oh God, help us to treasure this in our heart today as we consider your redemption of us in Jesus Christ. As we consider his propitiation of your wrath in his blood. We need your help to do this. We need your grace. We need your spirit to accomplish this in us. And so we ask for it humbly and yet fervently in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, my mic's on. I guess it's not working again. I don't know. That's okay. Well, it's good to be back with you all after two weeks gone. I always long to be back in in the house of the Lord, specifically with my brothers and sisters here at Christ the King Church. So thank you for the time off. Thanks for having us back. And I look forward to worshiping with you today and preaching God's word to you. Now, from the human perspective, it appears that God is in a dilemma. It looks to us that He is forced to be unrighteous, no matter what He does. Now, on the one hand, if God were to fail to keep His promise to save sinners, a promise that pervades the Old Testament, starting with God's promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 that he would someday send a savior, a head crusher. If God were to fail to keep his promise to save sinners, then he would be, of course, unrighteous. On the other hand, if God were to save sinners, if he were to save people from their sins simply by declaring them 
righteous, declaring them to be righteous, simply by deciding that their sins are no longer a big deal, no longer a problem for him, well, then he would likewise be unrighteous. So he's in a dilemma, it seems. If God saves people instead of punishing the rebellion, if he saves humans instead of pouring out his wrath on their sins, then God is unjust. He is unrighteous. So do you see the dilemma? If he doesn't save sinners, he's unrighteous because he promised to do so. If he does, well, it doesn't, it doesn't seem clear how he would do that and still uphold his justice, his righteousness, without making sinners pay for their sins. So what's God to do? Is there any way through this? Can he save sinners? Can he declare sinners to be righteous without compromising his own righteousness? Is it possible for God to uphold his righteous stance against sin and sinners, even while declaring sinners to be righteous before him? Well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Praise God for that. God cut through the Gordian knot. He solved the dilemma by sending his son to the cross. By pouring out his wrath on Jesus Christ, God upheld his righteous obligation to condemn sin and to uphold his promise to save sinners. That's what Paul addresses and fleshes out for us today. If the book of Romans was the Himalayan mountain range with its many high peaks, then our passage today is Mount Everest. I'm talking specifically about Romans 3, 21 to 26. It's hard to find a Bible scholar who doesn't recognize the theological richness, beauty, and centrality of this text. Not just for Romans, but for Paul's theology as a whole. Verses 21 to 26 summarize the gospel more thoroughly than any other passage in God's Word. So we might even say that today's passage is the highest summit, not only in Romans, but also in all of Scripture. In these verses, Paul unpacks his gospel, which he already summarized for us back in Romans 1 in a magnificent way. So let, let's remember, it's been a few weeks, let's remember where we are in the book of Romans, in Paul's epistle to these Christians in Rome. After his greeting and introductory comments about the gospel in the first 15 verses of Romans 1, Paul declares his theme in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God resulting in salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That means by faith from first to last, just as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. Those are, those are the two most important consecutive sentences ever penned by anyone. And our passage today from Romans 3 is really just an unfolding of those two verses. In Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. 
In the next verse, Romans 1, 18, remember, Paul launched into what, what we've been calling the sin section, which spans from 118 to 320. Two full chapters in which Paul lays down the law, as it were, against both Jews and Gentiles. And at the end of the sin section, Paul culminates his argument by accusing all people, Jews and Greeks alike, that means the whole world, of being under the power, under the enslavement of sin. Everyone from conception onward is a depraved sinner. In verses 10 to 18, Paul, he's he strung together a catena of Old Testament quotes about the ruin and the wretchedness of every person, the whole human race, every single human to be born. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They have ruin and wretchedness in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That describes you and me. It, it's, not, it's not just a description of other sinners out there in the culture. It's your biography and my biography. Your heart and mind and throat and tongue and lips and mouth and feet and eyes are ruined and wretched. And they, have, and, and they leave ruin and wretchedness in their paths. That's what you're capable of by nature. That's the only thing you're capable of by nature. The path of peace is not instinctive to you. You don't naturally fear God. It doesn't come natural. There's no native righteousness in you. And this is, this is true of every son and daughter of Adam. Now, so it feels as though the sin section is taking us down into the pit of despair. And, 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 and I will say, just in passing, as an aside, it, it should be a hit to our self-esteem, right? We, the, Paul is helping us achieve low self-esteem, which is a good thing. But, but it might seem that, you know, I, I, I use the mountaintop uh, illustration. Well, it might seem more like we're, we're descending into the pit of despair, but the opposite is actually true. We're ascending. Paul's taking us to the summit. This is the only way there. To get there, we've got to face head-on the bad news of our sin and, and the condemnation that it truly deserves. We've got to walk through it. We've got to keep walking up the mountain. If we try to go around it, we'll never reach the top. The only way to the good news at the mountaintop is through the bad news of our unrighteousness and guilt before a righteous and holy God. At the very end of the sin section, in verses 19 and 20, Paul gives a recap of our problem. And then in verses 21 to 26, we finally reach that peak where we see the gospel solution in all its glory. This is what Paul's been setting us up for. The good news that comes after the bad news. Verses 19 and 20 are Paul's transition 
from the sin section to the presentation of the gospel in verse 21 and following. You see, verses 19 and 20 form, form a hinge or connection point between the two section, sections. And Paul ties the two sections together by picking up the language of works of the law, guilt, righteousness, sin. Do you see how those words and ideas show up both in 19 and 20 and in 21 to 26? That's, that's Paul transitioning and tying the sections together. So let's, let's get before us the summary of our sin problem in verses 19 and 20. I'm reading from the translation in your handout. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those in the law, or you, could, you might translate that under the law. It's talking about primarily the Jewish people who are in the sphere of the law. It's been given to them. But it's, given, it's been given to them that every mouth, not just Jewish mouths, but so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be guilty before God. In other words, if, if God's chosen people can't keep the law, their mouths are shut, well then, by extension, the whole world is guilty and unable to do this. Verse 20, For by the works of the law no flesh will be declared righteous before God. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now these two, these two verses form a one-two punch to our pride, to our self-esteem. They undermine our sense that we're, that we're pretty decent people. Verse 19 says that no one is righteous with God. Everyone is guilty before Him. And then verse 20 adds insult to injury by saying that no one can get right with God by works. You're, you're not right with God and you can't do anything about it in yourself. You're, you're guilty before your Creator and you can't obey enough to make yourself right with Him. You can't generate, get, generate the righteousness you need from God within. It's not there. It'll never be there. You can never produce it. The image that Paul uses in this chapter, it's, it's one of his favorite metaphors, especially in Romans and Galatians, is the courtroom scene. The courtroom terminology it runs through this. God is the judge. The, the accused is all of mankind. The prosecuting attorney is the Old Testament, the law. And all the witnesses for the defense have been frustrated and ultimately silenced. Every mouth has been shut. Every human in the whole world stands guilty before God, verse 19 says. And, and this is how it will look literally on judgment day for everyone who doesn't have Jesus as their advocate, as their defense attorney. The law is a prosecuting attorney that has an open and shut case against you unless you have Christ and His righteousness on your side. The, the law is also like a, a straight edge. It, you all have straight edges in your home, right? Straight edge is that tool, you know, three-sided usually, uh, you, you can use it to draw straight lines or you can use it to check the straightness of previously drawn lines. All of us have decided to draw lines without using the straight edge. 
and most of the time we think our lines are a, a lot straighter than they actually are, don't we? But when the straight edge of God's law is applied to the lines that you've drawn, it exposes just how crooked they really are. And a straight edge, the, the straight edge of the law, remember the straight edge is the law in this analogy, a, a straight edge can't make crooked lines straight. It's powerless to correct. It's just, it's just a measuring stick. The, the law, likewise, can't help you get straight with God. It's powerless to make you righteous before Him. You're powerless to conform your lines to the straight edge of God's law, and the straight edge of God's law is powerless to straighten your lines for you. The situation seems hopeless. The only thing the law can do in this matter is to shine a bright spotlight on your plight. The law is fully capable of condemning you. We've seen that in Romans. But when it comes to making you righteous before God, it's helpless. That's, Paul, that's what Paul's getting at here. It just reveals the knowledge of sin. But, it, but it's not the law's fault, is it? The law isn't designed to make anyone righteous. Paul's going to say in Romans 7 that the law is good. It's, it's righteous. It's holy. It, there's nothing wrong with God's law. That's not where the problem lies. When the law is applied to the Lord Jesus, it revealed all straight lines. It revealed perfect righteousness all the way through. You see, that's what the law does. It reveals whether someone is righteous or unrighteous. And when it was applied to Jesus, it revealed perfect righteousness. When it's applied to everyone else, including you and me, it reveals myriads of crooked lines and not one straight line of them all. It exposes our desperate need for redemption. Our need for a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. It, it, it reveals our need for a righteousness, as Paul says, apart from the law. Now, as we've been ascending this Mount Everest ever since chapter 1, you might have forgotten that we were, were climbing Mount Everest. At times over the last few months, it might have seemed more like we were on Mount Sinai, right? When God was giving the law to Moses, that wasn't the place to be. Uh, that, that was not a safe place at all. The, the peak of Mount Sinai was the last place on earth Israel wanted to be when God was speaking to Moses and thundering and giving him the law. They witnessed the thundering and the lightning. They saw the fire and the smoke. They heard God's frightening voice. They saw the mountain shake, Exodus 19 says. They, they didn't want any part of that. Sinai was the place of law and judgment and wrath. God himself warned them against going up there. And they were happy to keep their distance. He didn't really have to tell them twice on that one. You know, Moses, you go, we'll stay. We're happy to stay. 
Romans 1 to 3 contains a lot of law and judgment and wrath. Paul has been very straightforward about our guilt and our condemnation. But the mountain peak in Romans 321 to 26 is pure gospel. It's sheer grace. It's all redemption. It was worth the wait, worth the climb. And that's because God's law and judgment and wrath that Israel witnessed on the summit of Mount Sinai, all of that has been poured out in all of its intensity on Christ. Our Lord Jesus absorbed God's anger and wrath for us. He took the punishment that we deserved. And because He did this, we get to experience a different kind of mountaintop experience. We, we don't get scary Sinai. We get the glorious gospel. We get Romans 3, 21 to 26. The good news in this paragraph is that you can be right with God. Now anyone can be considered righteous before God through or because of Christ's bloody propitiation. It's hard to read any part of this paragraph without reading the entire thing. So let's just read the whole passage and then we'll consider it in three parts. Verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, to which the law and the prophets bear witness. That is, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all and on all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly set forth as a propitiation in His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the, at the present time that He might be righteous even while declaring righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Propitiation is right at the center of this paragraph. If you, if you peel back all the layers of this passage, in the middle is the kernel of propitiation. It, it's, it's, it's the thing, or the truth on which everything turns. Propitiation is the heart of the gospel. Without propitiation, there is no good news, no redemption, no eternal life, no communion in life with God, no salvation. So, what is propitiation? Uh, it's a big word, but it's in the Bible, so we need to know what it means. We can't let this word, we can't, we can't forget this word or replace it with other words. It's better just to Keep it and to learn what it means. Keep it in our vocabulary. Keep it in our translations of the Bible. It's, it's, it's on its way out in a lot of English translations, but I think it's better to, to keep it. So what's it mean? Well, it refers to the turning away of God's wrath, God's anger. In your sin, you deserve to experience the full wrath and punishment of God forever. 
That's what, that's what we've got coming, coming. By nature, you are a child of wrath destined for eternal hell. Hell is, what, is where people experience God's holy and righteous judgment forever, without end. You see, God is obligated by his nature, by, by who he is, he's obligated to pour out his wrath and his condemnation on you. Do, you. do you realize that? God is obligated because of who he is, because of his nature, because of his justice, to pour out his wrath and his condemnation on you. He's a just God, and his justice demands that he crush you under the weight of his glory and your guilt. His justice demands that he pay you your wages. The due wages that your sin, your sins have earned. To escape this judgment, you need somehow for God to be propitiated. You need his anger to be appeased. You need his wrath to be satisfied. God can't just turn it off. He can't, he can't turn off his anger any more than he can turn off being God. His indignation towards sin and sinners is, is part of who he is. It, it, it's part of who he is as a righteous God. And if he's not that, then he's no longer God. He's no longer righteous. He can't pretend that, it does, that, that your sin doesn't exist or that his wrath against your sin doesn't exist. His wrath must be poured out. He can't bottle it up. He can't turn a blind eye and just let you into heaven. He must execute justice on your sin. So that's the bad news, right? That, that, that gets at that dilemma we were talking about at the beginning. But the good news is that God, in his grace... He's devised a plan, a, a way for his anger against you to be propitiated without actually taking it out on you personally so that you are punished forever in hell. He, he's come up with a plan for his wrath to be satisfied, appeased, averted, turned away from you. It's the plan of salvation. And, and in this plan, the wrath of God, it was still poured out. Remember, it had to be. It had to happen. Just, justice had to be served truly. He, he couldn't just say, you know, boys will be boys and girls will be girls. Humans will be humans. Um, you know, let's just get along and let's be happy in heaven. That would make him unrighteous. So he, he poured it out, it just, he didn't pour it out on you personally. It was poured out on someone else, on someone who is perfectly righteous, who was strong enough to absorb your condemnation without being obliterated by it. If God's judgment had landed on you, if even just a part of God's judgment had landed on you, it would have just eternally obliterated you. And that's what's going to happen for those who are not in Christ, eternally obliterated, eternally destroyed. 
But when your eternal death and destruction landed on Jesus, he absorbed it. It landed on his shoulders and he took it and it couldn't keep him eternally down because he was and still is the sinless, perfectly righteous God-man. That's propitiation. It's Jesus taking the wrath that you deserve so that God is satisfied and you don't have to be punished in hell. It's Jesus taking your punishment so that God's anger is appeased, turned away from you, which means you don't have to face God's condemning justice when you die and when Jesus returns. So how does a person take advantage of Christ's propitiatory sacrifice on the cross? What must you do? I mean, this is the most important question in, in all of history, and all of reality. What must you do to have God's wrath toward you propitiated, taken care of, turned away, satisfied? How do you become a person who is no longer under the condemnation of God? How do you join the ranks of those who are righteous rather than condemned? Well, the answer is tucked away in verse 25. It's two words. Do you see it? What is it? I'll give you a hint. The first word is through. The second word is faith. Through faith. It's by faith alone. God publicly set forth Christ as a propitiation in his blood. That means he made a way for his righteous demands to be met, justice to be served without punishing you, by publicly sending his son to the cross. And the only thing you must do, the only thing you can do to receive this gift is to entrust yourself to Jesus. That's the means. Believe in him and you're righteous before God forever. That should put a smile on your face. It seems too good to be true. And yet, there's nothing truer. And there's nothing better. Christ's propitiation of God's wrath on your behalf is the best news you've ever heard. And it's something you should think about every day of your life. It should produce in you a, a joy that drives you, that motivates you, that dictates how you live and how you think, how you view the world, how do you interact with the world, how you view God, how you view yourself. But propitiation is not just how we're saved in this passage. It's also how God maintained his integrity. We need to see that. Jesus Christ's propitiation of God's wrath on the cross is how God upheld his promise, upheld his impartiality, and upheld his righteousness. 
We see in verses 21 and 22 that God upheld his promise, specifically his promise to save sinners by setting forth Christ as a propitiation. Twice in verses 21 and 22, once in each verse, Paul refers to the righteousness of God. What is that? He's talking about God's saving righteousness. The, The saving righteousness of God is his commitment to save unrighteous people by giving them his righteousness. And it wasn't clear in the Old Testament, if you are a careful reader of the Old Testament, it still wasn't entirely clear how God was going to do that. You know, maintain his righteousness, make people, unrighteous people righteous by giving him his right. What's that even mean? How's that going to happen? Well, God promised to do this. Throughout the law and the prophets, he gave his word that he would save he, he committed himself to giving his own righteousness, righteousness to a people as a gift of grace. And he made good on his word about 2,000 years ago by sending his son to the cross on behalf of his people. God paid for our sins. He diverted his own wrath that was directed at us. He, he diverted it from us to Christ you can think of it as, as God's wrath had been coming down through the, old, old, through the whole Old Testament era. It was coming. It was inevitable. He couldn't pass over sin forever. And Christ stepped in between God's wrath and us, and he took it. And that's how God kept his promise. God upheld his promise to save by setting forth Christ as a propitiation. Second, in verses 22 to 24, Paul indicates that God upheld his impartiality by setting forth Christ as a propitiation. Paul emphasizes at the end of verse 22 that there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles on these matter, in these matters. For all have sinned and all continue to fall short of God's glory every day. Verse 23, this means, verse 24, that anyone and everyone who wants to be declared righteous before God, must do so by receiving the gift of His grace through faith. This free gift is received, Paul says in 24 and 25, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly set forth as a propitiation in His blood through faith. God's judgment is impartial and His salvation is impartial. He's no respecter of persons Either way, on either side of that. He's unbiased in his judging righteousness and he's unbiased in his saving righteousness. Finally, in verses 25 and 26, Paul teaches that God upheld his righteousness by setting forth Christ as a propitiation. This brings us back to the problem, the dilemma we considered at the beginning of the sermon, how can God keep his promise to redeem a people without compromising his justice? Is there a way for him to save sinful humans without just passing over their sins and looking the other way forever? Is there a way for God to maintain his just and holy wrath against sinners while also making those same sinners right with him? Can he inflict on humanity the punishment that we deserve, and at the same time give humans a redemption that we don't deserve. Can he do both? Is it possible for God to uphold his righteous stance against sin and sinners while 
even while declaring sinners like you and me to be righteous before him. We need to appreciate this dilemma, this problem. It, it, I mean, Paul is recognizing it as, a, as something of a dilemma. It's, it's, a, it's a possible objection that Paul is addressing. During the entire Old Testament period, God's integrity was at stake in this matter. When God didn't kill Adam and Eve instantly after they sinned, His righteousness was in question. Why didn't He do that? Throughout the whole Old Covenant, God in His kindness, forbearance, and patience kept passing over the sins of His people. He kept letting their sins go unpunished. Calling into question his fitness as a righteous judge, at least from our perspective. There's an ancient saying, the judge is condemned when the guilty is acquitted. Well, that appeared to be God during the entire Old Testament period. From Adam to Christ, God passed over the sins of guilty people. He acquitted guilty people. Instead of condemning them. Now, you might, you might respond, well, not quite. You know, God did require animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant to pay for the sins of His people. But remember, the blood of animals didn't take away, it didn't propitiate God's wrath. None of it. it Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Animal sacrifices couldn't turn away, couldn't propitiate God's wrath against sinners. At best, the Old Testament sacrifices were, were like spiritual IOUs until the coming of Christ. It seems then that God was being unrighteous by not pouring out His wrath on Old Covenant humanity, starting with our first parents in the Garden of Eden. Un un unbelievers or you know, skeptics often suggest that the real great dilemma is how a loving God could ever send anyone to hell. Right? That's the, that's the dilemma you'll hear. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? But that's not, that's not a real problem at all. As, as one pastor said, that doesn't even approximate a real problem. There's no problem with a loving God giving people what, they, what their sins genuinely deserve. That the wages of sin is death, eternal death. And the love of God isn't called into question when He pays people their due wages. If He paid every single human being their due wages, He would be righteous, holy, and loving. He would still be a God of love. He's eternally love, even before He created humans. No, the real problem is how a righteous God could let anyone into heaven. That's the problem that Paul's talking about. How can a righteous God declare anyone righteous before Him? 
if we don't see that as the problem, if we see the other question as the problem, how could a God, loving God send people to hell rather than how could a righteous God send, let people into heaven? If we get that wrong, if we, if we think the problem is the other one, the, the wrong one, it's because we don't understand God's righteousness, his holiness, and we don't understand our sin, our rebellion, our offense against God and our sin. But it's not immediately clear how God could continue to be holy and righteous if he let some humans into heaven, even though he promised to do it. I want you to notice in verses 25 and 26 the reason God publicly set forth Christ as a propitiation of his wrath. The reason God sent Jesus to redeem a people. What is it? It's stated twice. It's to demonstrate his righteousness. He says it once in 25 and once in 26. To demonstrate his righteousness. To demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. The righteous reputation of God was on the line. It needed to be established. It needed to be demonstrated. God wanted to demonstrate it. He couldn't just keep passing over sins without paying the due wages of sin. He couldn't put off forever satisfying his anger and his wrath against rebellion. The final clause of our passage, the very last part of verse 26, tells us what God desired to do. Do you see, what, do you see his desire? He, it's two things at the same time that he wants. He wants to be righteous. He, he, want, he wanted to uphold his righteousness. And he wanted to declare sinners to be righteous. That's what he wants. He wants both. He wanted to declare sinners righteous without compromising his own righteousness. And how did he do that? Well, he did it by giving us his own righteousness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The propitiation of God's wrath at the cross enabled God to be righteous, to be true to who he is, to his nature as God, even while declaring unrighteous sinners to be righteous when they put their faith in Jesus. We're going to hang out at the, uh, on this mountaintop for at least another week. We at least need to, you know, at minimum we need to scratch the surface before we move on. But the main application I want to leave you with today is that you need to be talking about these truths. You need to be dis discussing the words and ideas in this passage a lot with your friends, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, with your spouse, parents, how often do you talk to your children and grandparents? How often do you talk to your children about propitiation? It, it's a biblical word. And it, 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 that should be, it, your kids should be hearing it and beginning to understand it at a very young age, certainly before they reach double digits. So how often do you talk to your children about their guilt, their natural-born guilt before God, and their righteousness before God by faith in Jesus, through faith alone? Do they, 
do they understand the legal implications of their sin and of Christ's death on the cross? Paul, Paul uses legal categories. We need to talk in legal categories and think about it in legal categories. It shouldn't stop there, but it should be right at the beginning of these conversations. We talk about the gospel. It, in other words, what I'm asking is, is, is the gospel permeating your heart and your mind and your mouth and your home and your relationships? Is it, is it what you're all about? Is it what you're centered on? Is it the thing that your family is about? Or is it something else? Can, can your children explain how these things work in the courtroom of God? Do they, do they grasp God's wrath and justice? And, and, I mean, I'm asking about our kids, but what about you? Do you think about this? Can you articulate this, adults? But when it comes to our children, I want us to make sure that we're not assuming that the gospel is just going to move into their hearts and minds by osmosis because they're in a Bible-believing church or a Reformed church or something like that or because we homeschool or whatever it is, whatever you think might be the secret key that's going to make you and your descendants you know, faithful and, and on the right track. Tragically, that's a mistake that... that I have seen many reformed parents make. So let's be diligent to avoid this kind of presumption. You should be talking about passages like Romans 3, 21 to 26 at the dinner table, table in the car, at bedsides, when you're on walks. There's nothing more important for you to teach your children than this to make sure they get it, to make sure that they are owning their faith. And the only way, adults, that you can own your faith is by getting this, meditating on this, believing this, investigating this, searching out the Scriptures to understand what all, every single word in this passage and others like it mean and what the implications are. Understanding the story of the Gospel. And how it's centered on Christ and His work, His propitiation. Fathers, aim with planning. Aim for a deep, thorough understanding of the redemption, your redemption, your family's redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Not just for yourself, but for everyone in your family. And so I challenge you more specifically, I challenge every one of you, men, women, boys and girls, adults and children alike, to join my family in memorizing these six verses. Verses 21 to 26. Commit them to memory, you know, over the next few weeks. We, we might even be in this passage for a few weeks, at least another week. But but try to memorize. Maybe this week you can at least get it mostly down. Commit them to memory and then commit to understanding what it means. This is the most important thing to understand. It's the most important thing to have in the deepest recesses of your heart and in your mind. Make, c commit to making the gospel of Christ 
the centerpiece of your family, the centerpiece of your family culture, and the heartbeat of our life together as a body of Christ, as a church, as a congregation in the Lord. I look forward to studying this passage again with you next week. Let's pray. Oh God, work into us a deeper love for you and a deeper love for the truth of the gospel, which is your power to save us. Which is where you reveal your righteousness to us. Oh God, we want to know you and we want to know your gospel better than we do with a deeper love, with a deeper faith that produces more repentance and more obedience, more fruit by the power of your spirit working in us. Please accomplish this in every single person here, in every member of Christ the King Church. For Christ's sake, amen.